Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz saxophonist and composer Daniel Bennett. Born in Rochester, New York, he is on the heels of releasing 2016's Sinking Houseboat Confusion, a CD that he digs quite a bit. He began his jazz studies and journey at Roberts Wesleyan College, and he has been swayed by the music of Philip Glass and been dubbed as making folk jazz, a mix of jazz, folk, and 20th century minimalism. And it's worked out just fine. In 2015, the Daniel Bennett Group was voted Best New Jazz Group in New York City Hot House Jazz Awards, and the sky is always the limit for him. So please, dig this interview, my friends. Daniel, thank you for reaching out. I really appreciate the music and the time, and, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Yeah, man. Likewise. So let's go ahead and dive right in here. I always like to start with just kind of a snapshot of what's going on with you in your music world these days. Well, it's been a very, very busy few years. Uh, we just got off the road. We, we've done three Midwest tours, and actually, when you and I were conversing earlier, uh, emailing, I mentioned we have not been through Kansas City in a while, but we did do some shows in St. Louis. We just did a, our CD release at, at a great club in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, called Noche. So the band, uh, Daniel Bennett Group has actually been around for over 10 years. And almost, it, this is a funny thing, we've kept, been able to keep most of the original members intact. So we haven't killed each other yet, <laughs> which is great. So we're, we've been doing a lot of traveling. Uh, we did about 10 tours last year. Uh, you know, West Coast, Florida, um, Midwest, um, love going through the Midwest. Uh, we did some shows in Topeka, Kansas. I, I rarely get out to Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas. Um, so it's been very busy. We just released our new CD, which is called the, uh, Sinking Houseboat Confusion. Kind of a goofy name, but, um, you know, that's like our new thing now is the Sinking Houseboat Confusion. That's like our new, uh, uh, record that we've been promoting all year. So it's been very busy. So talk to me about this album. I listened to it. How do you feel? Take me in the studio and talk to me about the conversation you're having with this album. Man, we just wanted to have fun, uh, which, to be honest, I mean, every, every record, that's been my goal is let's have some fun. did three albums that were dedicated to our love of bears. We call it the Bear Trilogy. This is when I was living in Boston. It, it just, it's just fun. And then we did a, a record called Clockhead Goes to Camp and then The Mystery at Crown Castle. And then Sinking Houseboat Confusion. And usually when, we, when I tell people the name of the album, they just smile and laugh. And that's a great way to break the ice. <laughs> the, the humor is reflected in the music as well, hopefully. So uh, the album was, was a blast. We recorded it in New York, where we live, where we're based, uh, New York City, at a studio called Low Fish Studios. And my producer, her name is M.P. Kuo, and uh, she's an incredible uh, producer and engineer. And she's also a saxophone player. So, man, she can kick my butt. She can tell me what she hears, and, and she can correct things. It's great. It's just good to have somebody who understands the instrument, uh, who's in the control room, uh, who can really, like, guide me. Um, so I really appreciate that. Right on. Well, let's get back to some of the roots of you and how you got into music and how this all started back in Rochester, New York. Talk to me about your childhood and how you got into not only music but into jazz. Well, my first teacher was a lady named Lindsay Borden, and um, her husband was the band director at the high school. So I was very deeply connected to this family, uh, Lindsay and her husband, Mark, who, by the way, Mark Borden is still teaching at this high school. I went to a little high school in uh, just south of Rochester, New York, called Honeyoy Falls. It's kind of hard to pronounce. It looks like Hanoya Falls. It's actually Honeyoy Falls, New York. Um, so they introduced me to the world of music. Uh, and from there, I took lessons with this great woodwind doubler named Greg Knapp. 
who's also still in the Rochester area. And then it was just kind of a, a, a spiral of me just jumping into the music world. I did jazz band, marching band, uh, pit orchestras, just anything I could get my hands on. Fred Sturm, uh, who was a great educator, uh, his son Ike went to, I was good friends, still good friends with Ike. He went to my high school and Fred would come and do clinics, uh, at the high school, Fred at that time was the uh, director of the jazz program at Eastman School of Music. So uh, I got to connect with Fred and stuff. So that was really exciting as a high school kid. Uh, I still remember the first music, he gave me a tape recording um, of Billy's Bounce. And I was really excited, mainly just because Fred gave it to me. It just was like so cool to, you know, because I really looked up to him. He was a great, great influence on me. So, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of great people, supportive family. My Both of my older sisters played the clarinet. Um, I gravitated toward the saxophone, but then I eventually picked up clarinet and flute later. So, you know how it goes. It's just kind of an organic thing. Well, why was why was the sax the instrument ultimately that you gravitated towards? You know, man, there was a kid named Chris Oldfield, and I, he just popped into my head, uh, who's also an incredible. He still performs all over the place in Rochester and and, and throughout the world. Uh, Chris Oldfield was in high school, and my sister took me to a high school jazz band concert, and I heard this guy play the Pink Panther. And, man, I was blown away, and I was hooked. That was it for me. So, again, just role models. Um, it just, the, I don't know, the look of the horn and the sound and the fact that this guy, and I got some private lessons with him, too. I remember that. That was a big deal um, for me. Uh, you know, role models were important, and they, I, I don't know. It just drew me. The saxophone just drew me. When you look back on your life, was your dream growing up always to get into music, or were there other dreams you had? This was it, man. This was it, 100%. Um, there was a brief period in high school where I was actually playing guitar almost more than saxophone. I just I learned guitar along the way, and that was that was the only little divergence was just getting into the guitar world. Even though I was really I was really operating as a saxophonist as a kid, but. That was it, but I never left. I mean, as far as like being interested in other uh, career paths, never, uh, never. The thought never even crossed my mind. Before you went to the uh, New England Conservatory of Music, you were at Roberts Wesleyan College, and you had worked with a handful of folks. What did you learn there? What was valuable before you moved on? Well, Roberts Wesleyan is a great Christian liberal arts college, so I got a really great foundation in. Uh, uh, meeting great people, uh, character development, also getting a degree in music education was pretty big, even though most of what I do is perform now. Myself and a lot of people would tell you that getting a degree in music ed is huge because it's basically a double major. So I was doing ed and performance and woodwind methods and conducting and choral and arranging and just, just every possible thing I could do. And also, I was just learning how to be a good person uh, and communicate well. So Roberts Wrestling was huge. I actually just went back to Roberts to do a clinic and a master class and a big concert uh, in the fall with my band. And um, we had a great time connecting with the students. Um, so uh, th there has to be more to your music. Otherwise, what we're doing is a little bit pointless. I mean, you know, let's be real. Does the world need another saxophonist? Does it? No, they don't. I mean, the world didn't really need another saxophonist 50 years ago or now. So you have to, I believe you have to do something a little bit extra with your music. And it's different for everybody, and I respect that. But it's, but you have to do something different and unique, and, and you have to humanize your music a little bit. So Robert's Wrestling was important for that. 
speaking of unique and, and another person that, that can add to the whole music mix of our world, Philip Glass is a big influence. And as far as I'm concerned, from not only just classical music, but a musical perspective, he was groundbreaking. He is. What was yeah. it about him and even um, Stephen Wright that moved you so much to like their stuff? The first piece I heard by Philip Glass was Einstein on the Beach. And uh, it's just got such a trance quality to it. It just sucks you in. Um, it's got a lot of, like, um, you know, pop influences. I think it's relatable, um, the melodies. And then Steve Reich, I've been following his music for years, violin phase and piano phase. So I think those are the two first pieces that I listened to intently as a college kid. I just remember those two in particular. But uh, New York Counterpoint, um, Eight Lines, you know, so many great – both of those artists um, – were brave enough to do music their way. Um, there's actually some great articles about Steve Reich where he talks about the music. It's just his personality, and, and he kind of admits that in some ways his music, you can always tell it's him. I mean, he's evolved a little bit, but it's not like he's trying to reinvent himself every time. Uh, that resonates with me because that's kind of how I am as a person. You, people know who I am, and even though I've put out seven albums, you can hear a common thread throughout each record. So, you know, I don't know. Both of those uh, composers were very big influences on me. So, as we mentioned before, you moved from Roberts on to the New England Conservatory. You start learning with um, Jerry Berganzi, and you, you, you're playing in the Boston area. Talk to me about that experience up there in Boston. Oh, it was great. I took lessons, uh, saxof uh, classical saxophone with Ken Radnofsky, who plays with Boston Pops, Boston Symphony, all that stuff. And then I took a lot of jazz uh, with Jerry Berganzi, took all of his classes. I think I took virtually every class he offered. I actually was kind of overloaded with classes during this time. This was I did two years at, at NEC for my master's. And I took private lessons with Jerry. I also took uh, private lessons for about a year with George Garzon and also Bob Moses. Uh, I played in Bob's ensemble and used to go out to Bob's house in Quincy, Massachusetts and get private lessons. We'd have three-hour lessons and uh, and I would get my checkbook out at the end of the lesson and I would think to myself, oh my gosh, this is going to cost me $600. And, and he was so generous. He'd, he'd say, give me, give me 40 bucks. Give me, you know, I mean, he was just, he was, he's that kind of guy. Bob Moses was a very important important person for me to connect with uh, in Boston. But uh, Boston's great. Boston's world-class. I still go there a lot. My band, uh, for a long time, was performing every week at the Liberty Hotel in Boston. Even though I'm based in Manhattan, I would take a bus every week on every Wednesday night from New York, from Chinatown in New York to Chinatown in Boston to play at, the, at this hotel. Um, I kind of miss that hotel, to, begin, to, to be honest with you. Um, but my buddy Blake Newman is, has got the gig now up there, so um, I'm happy for him. I, uh, I turned it over to him. But, uh, yeah, Boston, world-class, man. Uh, Rouse Jazz Club, Scholars, Regatta Bar, the Beehives. So many great venues there. It's just such a great town. So let's move on your lineage, your geographical lineage here in your life. And you come to New York City in 2010. What was it like? Was it kind of a natural transition from a big town like Boston to go into New York, how bespeckled were you by the fact that you were in the jazz capital of the world? The move was was uh, was cool, man. Uh, I had been performing in New York a lot um, as a Boston resident. I was also coming into New York. You know, like a lot of musicians, I was kind of doing both cities. Um, there was a period when I was just almost 
I, I probably should have had an apartment in both cities. But so the move, the transition was smooth for that reason. Um, I have been uh, working at this pretty much since I was 18 years old, um, living in Rochester. So the infrastructure of having uh, good uh, managers and booking agents, people helping me and having great musicians and connections has always been there. The struggle is always there. It's not to say that it was just a, you know, that, you know, what, you know, there's always a struggle uh, when you move, but I was, uh, you know, I hit the ground running just not because I'm anything special, but ba- mainly because I was already operating at, at our, at a, you know, kind of intense, uh, level when I was in Boston. The Daniel Bennett group is the big thing right now on your radar. And you guys have been around for a long time. You were just named, you've gotten awards over the years. Let me ask you this. What kind of ride has it been? How did this come about, and how do you feel after all these years together as a group that survived and it's done as well as you've done? It feels great, man. Uh, it's But, you know, for me, it's about people. Um, the, the reason the group has done well is because I include a lot of – as many musicians as I possibly can, and I will often – you come to see us perform any night – you, there's the core three of us, Nat Janoff on guitar, Matthew Fike on drums, and myself, but then we, you'll see five or six or seven people coming up and playing with us because that's kind of how we have always run the group as, uh, with that kind of collaborative spirit. Um, so, uh, and, and we do things our own way, uh, and I think that resonates with people. We've made a lot of decisions to, to find our own path um, as musicians and to speak freely and, and to have a good sense of humor, hopefully. Um, and I think people can, can relate to that. I, I, ne- I didn't come to New York to try to fit into a jazz scene, per se. And I always tell people that, that our music definitely floats into different scenes, but for sure. I mean, we just did our album release of the Blue Note in o- October, and there's a, there's a clear, I mean, that's got its own scene that we um, are part of, but it's it's not always intentional for me because we we can also be performing you know in San Francisco uh at a jazz club um and it's we're going to fit into that just the same as we would here or it could be a folk club it could be a, a, a any kind of concert space I, I didn't come to New York to try to fit into a scene and i think in a way that's liberated me and it draws more people to the group it's the same reason why i'm always leery about describing our style because oftentimes, once you name two or three of your influences, it immediately kind of, um, you know, alienates uh, other people who might be drawn to your music otherwise. So, No, that's great. So, as I mentioned before, you did in 2015 get the Best New Jazz Group in the New York City Outhouse Jazz Awards. Let me ask you this. What awards have you gotten? Or an, an award, not your favorite one, but one that surprised you that you received. Um, man, I got, I got a really, a nice thing happened when I was at Roberts, actually, uh, uh, this thing called the Presser Scholarship. It basically, it was, you know, it was merit-based, and so I had to perform a lot of recitals and do a lot of things to, um, after I got the award, but it, it was a nice monetary award, and it helped me a lot as a college kid, because I didn't, you know, my parents both, you know, growing up, uh, my mom, uh, works in special ed, and my dad is in human services, so I, Certainly did not grow up with a lot of money. I had, uh, grew up with a, little, with a family of five in a, in a little house with one bathroom in in <laughs> in a small town of like two thousand people. That meant a lot to me uh, as a kid. That that was kind of a big thing, and um, so I would say that that maybe that I don't know. Um, but I'm grateful for anything that I mean. Anytime people notice what's going on, uh, I'm very appreciative. 
So you had mentioned some albums that had moved you and some music, musicians over time, but who would you consider your jazz heroes? Well, I love Ornette Coleman, uh, I, uh, Skies of America, Science Fiction, um, The Shape of Jazz to Come. Um, I had a buddy in high school who, who kind of turned me on to Ornette's music. But I like a lot of other stuff, man. You know, um, uh, New Wave, I love The Smiths, The Cure, Depeche Mode, Pop from the 80s, you know, Duran Duran, a lot of the uh, synth pop, uh, Joy Electric. You know, there's just, I don't know, for me, it's it, the melody is the, the the crucial thing for me. There has to be, as long as it's got a strong melody, I, I'm drawn to it. I mean, as a kid, I grew up listening to, like, folk music. My parents were into John Denver. I got to see John Denver a couple times and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, so that was cool. Uh, Pete Seeger, um, the Weavers. So, you know, again, there's a long answer. I'm sorry. But, you know, anything with a melody is influential to me. But as far as horn players, uh, Ornette Coleman was, was big for me. Um, because he was – that talk about bravery, right? I mean, everybody uh, – he when he died uh, tragically a couple years ago, you know, he was universally loved, right? But he, he was not accepted for many, many years and uh, by the jazz establishment. But then, uh, you know, as as always happens in the jazz establishment, they uh, once he became popular and, you know, he won some awards and, you know, then everybody kind of came over to his side, you know, Johnny come lately. But I felt like Ornette was, uh, was brave throughout uh, everything. Um, and uh, so I really respect him as an artist and he's a great musician. You know, the one thing about the longer answers is, is that it answers questions for me, and, you know, you've been kind of dubbed, <laughs> you've been dubbed the folk jazz guy, and, and now it makes sense why that is. But out of all of these shows you've mentioned, I usually take, and I'll split this question up into two ways. Usually I'll ask if you could go back in time and see any jazz musician who you see. Let's do that, but let me also ask you, what's one of the best live shows you've ever seen? Oh, Bela Fleck. I've seen Bela Fleck probably a hundred times uh one of my favorite musicians um recently well the one that sticks in my head he played at symphony space in new york about a year ago with his wife um and uh who's got a phenomenal voice so they have this duo thing going on and it's actually really cute they, they tour around in this beautiful big rv and their son was there with them and uh he was out there in the lobby like playing with toys and like kind of you know okay mom and dad do your thing and then you know let's go um, but, um, and I think there, I think it was his, her mom or somebody was with them too watching. It was just really, it, it seemed like a very sweet family. So that was, that was a great concert. Um, so, uh, that's the first one that pops into my head. I, I, uh, love Bela Fleck and I've seen the Fleck tones a million times. Um, so. No, that's good. So if you could go into a time machine and see anybody in, in the history of jazz, who would you go see and why? Man, I would go back to 1981 to Central Park, and I would see Simon and Garfunkel. And I'll, and I'll explain, because uh, I know you're talking about a jazz concert, but, you know, that band, man, had some of the most incredible jazz players on the planet. And yeah. uh, another thing, as a kid, I remember we had the VHS of that concert, and I would watch this as a kid. Um, the the band that they had was insane. They had Steve Gadd on drums, Richard T was playing keyboard, Anthony Jackson on bass, um, Jerry Nywood. Actually, speaking of who's a saxophonist, uh, Jerry was also an important influence for me. Jerry had a lot of Rochester roots, so I always thought it was cool that Jerry Nywood uh, was playing in that band. So that I would go back to that concert, and uh, and that was an insane time period in New York. 
uh, the city was so dangerous, right? It was such a crazy period of time in New York, and they somehow managed to stage this concert in Central Park with half a million people. Um, and uh, and and the two and Simon and Garfunkel, they man, they fought like little kids during the rehearsals. I read that they did three weeks of rehearsals before the concert, and they just they sparred like 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 kids. They were fighting with each other all the way up to the reunion. So. That whole thing is fascinating that those guys pulled it together and did the show. So that's where I would go. So that would cover yeah. a lot of music history right there. <laughs> that's really been on my radar lately. I've been reading a lot about it. I've it, 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 It's fascinating to me, too. That show would be... I mean, you just don't see that anymore. I mean, you don't... It's like the Woodstocks and all these big things. They just don't happen. Actually, I know why I thought about that. I just had... My girlfriend's mom showed me a thing about Cowtown Ballroom that was here in Kansas City, and they had a big, huge crop of people that would come through town, you know, and Zappa came through, and there was a lot of people, and it was just this hometown place, but it would get overrun with all these people, and it was kind of a hippie venue, Mm. and the beauty of that is that that kind of thing just doesn't happen anymore. It's so corporatized. Things right. are made such a big deal, and, a, and honestly, in a in a town that has places like that, the local governments don't want to deal with that. I mean, New York right. is probably more on that keen end of it, but in a lot of these other cities, they don't want to deal with the overrunning of kids and just everything right. that can go wrong. You know. So anyway, yeah. that's it. those are crystallized music notions. That concert specifically, too. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Interesting, right? I know. Yeah. I know. It's. It, yeah. That would, have, that would have been a cool cool thing to see. <laughs> that would have been for sure. So let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? Well, I love music, and jazz occasionally falls into the music category. See what I did there? Sorry. Um, that's, good. that's my politically correct answer. I, I love music. I love music. Uh, I love it. Music is on in my house all the time. I have two kids, and sometimes it's jazz. It could be kids' music, folk music. Praise music, gospel music, you know, whatever. It could be anything. When jazz falls into the, quote, beautiful music category, then I love jazz. And believe me, I do. I'm I'm not, this is not my way of saying that I don't love jazz. (laughs) But I love jazz when it's honest and free and open. Um, We talked about Ornette Coleman. Honesty, bravery. To answer your question, I love jazz when, well, I guess I'll just say it again. I love jazz when it's honest and real. Um, and that's, you know, and, uh, and, and the melodies, um, I, I'm a melody guy. I, if I can't sing something, you know, I'm a very simple person. If I can't sing what someone's playing at me, I, I lose interest, man. I really do. Uh, that's why I love Lee Konitz so much. I've seen Lee a lot in here in New York. You, you can understand what he's playing and it doesn't, I, that in no way means that that's not a criticism. It's just, I, I just like to hear what the guy is playing and the yeah. human ear cannot decipher 6,000 notes being played uh, at a breakneck tempo. I'm sorry. I know that we all pretend that we, that the ear can hear that. They cannot, they can't, yeah. you cannot process that. So for me, I don't enjoy that. So Paul Desmond's another one. I can hear it. I try to, I try to um, transcribe a lot of Paul's music every week. I can understand what he's playing. I can actually transcribe his music. I can have students transcribe Paul Desmond's music uh, pretty fast because uh, you can understand it. And it's you know, it's. I'm going on a tangent. I'm sorry, but that's no uh, melody's big. Melody's big. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. What, what's the last vinyl LP you put a needle down on? I when I grew up, my parents had a had a record player, 
and there's a there's a record. Uh, it's it's the Eastman School Music Orchestra and Chuck Mangione um, performing this song called "Hill Where the Lord Hides." That is probably the last LP that I listened to, and it had a big, a very famous solo uh, from Jerry Nywood on soprano sax. You know, so that's that's probably it. Um, you know, now I'm all digital. To be honest with you, man, I would still be buying uh, LPs and CDs, but we, we moved to a different apartment here in New York, and I just don't have the space. And it killed me, man, to go digital. But now I just download everything. You know how it goes, right? It's just, yeah. Man, it's like, there's just no space. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, and records and record players take up a lot of space for sure. So everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, and business associates. Everybody does. But who do you think you are? When you wake up and go out into the world, what's your perception of who you are? A great man once told me, and I love this phrase, worship God and serve the people. So that being said, I'm a servant. I, have, I tried, That's what I strive for. Believe me, I, I'm, this is not me trying to, to pretend that I'm some you know, pious person, but I'm a servant. Above all else, my job is to serve people. So that's who I am. And a lot of things fall under that, being a husband and a father, a uh, band leader, uh, tr- uh, paying my group well, being a good businessman, um, showing up on time, traveling, touring, being reliable. So there's a lot of things that fall underneath that. But ultimately, Joe, I, I'm a servant, man. That's it. I don't, pl- I don't perform music for other musicians in mind. I perform for the audience in mind. That's it. That's it. I guess that's who I am. <laughs> Perfect. And that right there, I think that's a great way to kind of put a period on the end of the interview. So thank you for opening up and giving me a little bit of your world today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Daniel for his time, honesty, and stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for all things Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.